Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Hey, there were a couple of Elixir releases. Let's start with the newest one first. So there's Elixir 1.15.0. It's not out as of this recording, but Release Candidate 0 is out, and they just released Release Candidate 1. I didn't really see anything notable in there. So get into those into that change log to see if there's anything specific for you. One that did jump out to me was something about supporting distributed file.stream, which sounded interesting. I'll have to dig into that. All right, well, that's it about 1.15. There is another release with 1.14. There's a new patch, which is 1.14.5. It's a small bug release. But the, the important part with this one is that if you're wanting to use the latest OTP26, which was another big release recently, you'll need to update to this latest patch for Elixir.114 and 1.15 ought to support that as well. All that to say is that if you're on the bleeding edge and upgrading to OTP 26s and release candidate zeros and ones or something, you're going to run into some issues. And there is one noticeable issue, which is Elixir LS. So if your editor is tied into Elixir LS, it currently crashes with OTP 26. So you might want to stick on to OTP 25 for a little bit, a little while longer. We have some links that tracks those issues in case you want to subscribe to them so you know when they're fixed. But, you know, progress there's always two steps forward, one step back. Eventually, we'll get to those two, two steps forward again, <laughs> and we'll be good to go. All good releases, but just, you know, heads up. Speaking of releases, LiveView 0.19 is also out. And at first glance, it just looks like a lot of removal of deprecated, previously deprecated features and adding more deprecations with a little bit of features and enhancements sprinkled in between there. So if you are behind on those deprecations... It might be a tough upgrade. Maybe fix those first. Yeah, there's one new feature in here that I was really happy to see. It is the support stream resets with bulk insert operations. So previously, I'd been using streams and was trying out a small project where I wanted an index page that had a whole list of you know rows of items. And I wanted to do filtering at the top so I could do quick searches through SQL. But I couldn't use streams with that because you couldn't do a full replace of the items. And in order to, to do that, I'd have to like track which items re were removed from a SQL query result set. And it's like, well, I don't want to do that. So I just opted to not use streams at the time. So like this addition where you can have like a, here's the new stream and do a reset on all the items, that's perfect. Like that's what I was needing. You could maybe do a pagination with this. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so so Herman Valesco had a good example of infinite pagination, but it does that doesn't reset the you know the DOM elements that just con continues to append. This feature will let you do yeah the the pagination like old school <laughs> I don't know what to call it old school pagination where the old we'll call it pagination that we all know and love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Web 1.0 pagination. <laughs> I think the theme of this one is deprecations though, but yeah, that stream resets is a big deal. Another theme with the deprecations is that there was a couple more functions like live image preview or live file upload, kind of like with 1.18, a lot of things moved to component functions versus like regular Elixir functions. These have been deprecated as well. It's still called the same. It's still live image preview, but now it's, now it's a componentized. So you'll have to adjust how you call that in your markup. But a lot of consolidation, I'm liking it because... 
sometimes with Heeks templates and stuff, I'm not sure if I'm writing a, a regular function, like interpolate Elixir in there with a regular function, or am I using some component that gets Heeksed in somehow, right? Like, anyway, I'm enjoying how it's consolidating. It's becoming much more predictable. I did like how what was being deprecated and the alternative, the, the new way, it did look like it'd be a very smooth migration over to it. So should be fairly painless. And the last thing I'll mention on this is Chris McCord did open source a little app he's calling To Do Trek, which is just a showcase of some of the new features that are coming out. It looks kind of like Trello. You can you can make columns and add tickets and check them off and all that good stuff. So check that out if you're interested in seeing some of the latest practices. Yeah, if you recall from Chris McCord's keynote in uh, ElixirConf EU, he was showing off these multiple lists of checklist items as like these multiple form things. And that project is what he's kind of packaged up and open sourced. And there's also a Phoenix blog post about this release and that open source to-do project. It's supposed to be a showcase example of this is how you can do streams and nested forms and dynamic forms. That's really cool that that's available now. Yeah. It's a typical example, like if you're learning a language or, or a framework, one of the first things that you try to build is a to-do list app. This goes beyond that, though. It's not just a to-do <laughs> list. This is also distributed. This is also Phoenix Presence tracked. So you can, I can see Mark doing his to-do list while I'm looking at my to-do list on the same screen, right? It's above and beyond, but it is a very nice example that showcases all of the new things in Phoenix Live View as well like this embedded change set stuff where it's dropping params and ordering params and all these change set things. So that's a very good living example of all the new things. And next up, Jose Valim has been active on Twitch and he's been doing some live streams which are recorded so you can catch them after the fact if you weren't available at the time. So there are three in particular. I just wanted to highlight what some of these are. Uh, one is prompts for AI agents in Elixir in day one, and then a day two for prompts for AI agents. And he was describing those as being distributed AI agents using Elixir and superpowers. And well, I haven't had a chance to see these yet, but they looked really interesting. It's like, these are the ones I want to make sure I want to see what he's done in these. But they are not short either. <laughs> <laughs> these are hour and a half long or two hours long. It's an awesome resource to have where you can see the creator of the language and how he tackles different problems and how he thinks about things. Because a lot of it's just talking it out and you, you know you got the interactive chat and people are making suggestions or asking questions. You get to see Jose discover for himself and admit to himself that he is not a prompt engineer. <laughs> like what a lot of this AI stuff is like, <laughs> yeah, any, anyway, it's, it's fun. Yeah. It's so like there was another one. It was uh, contributing to open source with Elixir. That was another Twitch stream. And this one was really cool because he was going through the process of creating a feature for Livebook where you can do doc tests in Livebook and then having this overlay that would display the failure information about the test in the doc test code. So that was a, a neat little thing, just seeing how that whole live coded process could be done. And it all ended up in a PR that was merged. Just think, I'm thinking through the layers there. There's so many layers involved there. <laughs> I know. That's, that's crazy. All on that one stream, huh? Yeah. He planned this. You got Elixir, then you got 
then you got Mix, and then you got XUnit, and then you got Phoenix, and then you have LiveView, <laughs> and then you have LiveBook, and then you have like Monaco. That at the at JavaScript is like, good lord, there's so many touch points there. And then he reviewed it and merged it and released it <laughs> and published it. <laughs> All right, coming up next, Chris Keel shared a nice tip that I would repeat here on the on the, on the podcast. So in IEX, the prompt by default is IEX parentheses number where you are, right, uh, in the terminal, and then a right angle caret. But you can configure that prompt. And so here's the tip is that you can adjust it to be IEX parentheses number semicolon. And if you copied and pasted that into your IEX session, that would be understood as like a, a function, right? Like I'm calling the function IEX and I'm giving it, you know, the argument of whatever number I'm on. If you write yourself a function that understands that IEX function, then you can literally copy and paste what is in your IEX session back into IEX and it should understand it. If you didn't understand that, I totally understand. There's there's a, a Twitter example. It might make a lot more sense there, but all of that is an effort to be able to write code in IEX and copy and paste it right back into IEX. So that way, if you had to like repeat a bit of code you already wrote, just copy and paste it and make your adjustments, whatever, and it should just understand it. I thought that was a nice tip. So I hope you enjoy. Next up, we just wanted to mention more keynotes from various Code Beam conferences are now up. Just to mention a couple, there's one titled On the Shoulders of Giants. There's Room for Larger Giants, Francesco and Leopardi. There's Distributed Elixir Made Easy by Johanna Larson. And there's How to Sell Elixir Again by Evadne Wu. So check those out if you're interested. And next, ElixirConf tickets. The U.S. version are going to be on sale. So by the time you hear this, they might already be on a sale and available. There's a link in the show notes to where you can go check out the website. And obviously, there are no speakers or anything yet announced. This is like the early bird phase of the ticket sales. So anyway, are you guys planning to make the trip this time? Yes, indeed. I will be there. Oh, it's over in your hometown now, huh? <laughs> I don't live there. I live close enough, though. So yes, I will be driving over. I will be saving myself the uh, hotel tickets. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I haven't decided yet if I want to even submit a talk, but I would love to go. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. It's it's at 2023.elixirconf.com. By the time you hear this, go check out that website. Go get yourself a ticket. It is in person or virtual, and they do have trainings available as well. I think they have announced the trainings, so go check out those and uh, hope to see you at ElixirConf. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Sean Moriarty. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really glad you could come because there's been a lot of interesting stuff going on in the AI space, in machine learning with Elixir, a lot of interesting things. And really, that is an area that's beyond my expertise. So we're happy to have you come as our community resident expert <laughs> and help us understand some of these things, but also talk about some of the really cool stuff that's been happening in NX lately 
and where your focus is. I'd love to just learn all about that. But before we get there, I'd love to talk a little bit more about you and what kind of work are you doing and and where do you live and anything you want to share? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Sean Moriarty. I'm originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or the area around Philadelphia. Big uh, Philadelphia sports fan. I'm also the author of Genetic Algorithms and Elixir, as well as a, a new upcoming project, hopefully sometime towards the end of June. Oh. And I'm also a uh, open source contributor in the NX ecosystem. So created Axon, the deep learning framework, and then I've worked on various projects in the Elixir machine learning you know, community. You skipped over the part where you have this big thing that's coming up. You didn't tell me what that was. What's that big thing? <laughs> it is a, well, so it is another publication through a very friendly Elixir publisher that I'm sure everyone's aware of, uh-huh. and it will be on machine learning in Elixir. So, oh, nice. <laughs> very cool. That's right. Yeah. So we're very far <laughs> along in the publication process for that. Like I said, tentative release end of June, barring any hiccups in the process. Yeah. Cool. That's soon. Congrats. Yeah. Pretty exciting. It's been in the works for about a year and a half now, almost two years, basically since the beginning of the NX project. It's like been a seed, you know, in my mind. And then, uh, been working on it for quite a while through all of the massive API changes and everything and all of the, the new libraries in the community as well. Rewrite the library, rewrite the book. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I would love to talk about some of those things about NX. And in particular, I remember when NX was first announced and that really is what kicked off Elixir into this machine learning space and this kind of journey that it's been on. And at the time I thought, wow, that's really cool. But you know, that's not a tool for me. I'm not in that space. I don't understand those things. I feel like I'd have to get a degree to even know what to do. I was really glad that it was there so that Elixir could be a force and could be something that, you know, have an answer for what was always, oh, you do Python for that. If you want to do anything with machine learning, you use Python. And I love that. And then, you know, lo and behold, like comes this AI revolution where machine learning is like everywhere and everyone in the mainstream media is even talking about AI. And now it feels like Elixir's, all the groundwork has been laid all ahead of time so that we can actually be participants in what is happening right now. And that just feels incredible. For one, I want to say thank you for your work in helping to make that foundation possible and, and putting that in place. And I would love to hear about your insights on that whole journey and that process. At the time when you guys were starting to work with this with Jose, were you seeing these changes in the AI community, which were invisible to me? I didn't know any of this was happening. Were you seeing this and saying, oh, this is going to be big? Or you're like, you had no clue too. And it just kind of caught by surprise. Like, what was this all like? Um, So at the time, I, I don't know if we necessarily thought that the project would progress to the point that we're at right now where, you know, we can develop basically the same functionality, the same, you know, types of models that you can use in Python. I I don't know if we necessarily ever saw that because we started basically from scratch. So we were building everything from the ground up rather than tying ourselves to like a a particular runtime or, you know, it would have been really easy to write NIFs for like the Onyx runtime, which is like, you know, neural network exchange format just live with the fact that, you know, you always have to work in Python for all of these. And that would probably would have been a much quicker path to to initial success, but I don't necessarily know if it would have been as 
useful as the NX projects have turned out to be is, you know, a framework for doing any type of numerical computing. And we also definitely, I don't think anybody foresaw how quickly people would start adopting artificial intelligence and machine learning, particularly through the, the large language models that are available through OpenAI and, and these APIs. So that was definitely something we did not anticipate. I think one of the things that we're going through and thinking through right now is a lot of people are living in a space where you know, the machine learning aspect of your project might be a black box. It's just a call out to an API. And, you know, what does the tooling look like surrounding just calling out to those APIs? And then, um, you know, is there a place for open source implementations, these large language models to, to live, you know, in, in people's stacks and projects? So we're, we're thinking through a lot of those things right now, but we definitely did not, I think, anticipate how big, one, you know, the Elixir projects would grow, and then two, just how fast people would start adopting artificial intelligence and machine learning. You just touched on like three things that I want to talk about. So maybe we can start with this. I, I've been hearing a lot of, and even Jose said this, of prompt engineering. This is a way of interacting with these models to do what you want them to do, I think. Can you tell me in layman's terms what prompt engineering is? Sure. So a lot of it will probably date back to GPT-3's original release back in, I think it was like early 2020, or maybe it was late 2020. The original GPT-3 model was like a completion model. So you would give it a prompt, right? And then it would give you a response. But it was really, really bad at, uh, you know, generating what you wanted it to. <laughs> um, and I think one of their insights was that the way people were interacting with these models was they were giving these models instructions. So you would say, I want you to act like this. And then you would give the model a few examples. And then you would, you know, it would, it would complete whatever you wanted it to do. So essentially you were, you were telling the model to follow your instructions. And so they, they started training models specifically to follow instructions. So they would, you know, do instruction tuning, which is where you give a model an instruction and a response pair. And then they would also do reinforcement learning on human feedback, where you would have two models or two variants of the same model complete a, an instruction following task. And then you'd have a human sit there and annotate which one was better at following instructions. I see. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so I remember a teacher once doing an exercise with uh, the computer science boot camp people. He, he said, tell me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he would just do exactly what they told him to do. And it became, it became clear that there were like all these little things that humans just instinctively know, and they just understand everyone knows how to make a, you know, the shared knowledge. But once you break it down to specific instructions that's the difficult part so it turns out i've already been classically trained in prompt engineering <laughs> via peanut butter and jelly sandwiches just not with actual ai that's pretty cool okay all that's right. right yeah so <laughs> the uh a lot of now basically what we've ended up with is a lot of models that are instruction tuned or they they're basically fine-tuned to follow instructions so a lot of the really powerful like zero shot models you'll have are you know they're pre-trained which is where they just throw a ton of text at them and then they take an additional step where they're instruction tuned and then they might take an additional step where they're trained on human feedback. And through this process, you get models that are really, really good at following instructions. So then the prompt engineering is more or less getting these models or giving this, these models uh, a set of instructions to follow. I'm of the opinion that prompt engineering is not necessarily useful I don't know. I think that's a controversial opinion, but no, no, no. This this seems like one of those like side effects of that that people have too quickly accepted as being normal. Uh, I think you know it's uh, yeah. I I I think I agree with you here, but uh, but how do you fix it? I guess that's the next question. 
Yeah, so I, I think it's one of the things that will probably very quickly disappear or change with newer models. GPT-4 is just an example of a model that's like a, a step above, you know, everything else that's out there right now. One of the ways it's a step above everything is you don't really need to do much prompt engineering to get it to do what you want it to do. You just ask it and then most of the time it, it, it does it pretty well. So you, you kind of very quickly eliminate the need for prompt engineering air quotes because you don't need to really do much engineering or thinking at all. <laughs> um, and then prompt engineering, I guess the skill set for being a, a quote good prompt engineer is pretty much the same skill set as just being a good programmer in my opinion and like having the ability to convey in natural language what you want is more or less what what a good prompt becomes oh, it's interesting you say that because i was i was thinking it was actually uh social engineering <laughs> you have to be good at social engineering and get it <laughs> yes leading into the areas that you want them to talk about you know <laughs> What I think is fun about prompt engineering is interacting with OpenAI, ChatGPT, you know, asking ChatGPT, I want you to do this. How do I have to structure the prompt to do this? <laughs> <laughs> and it would actually give me good clues. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's like a, a lot of AI assisted like prompt engineering techniques. I think one of the areas it might actually be useful for or, you know, where I would definitely not be a good prompt engineer is in like generative art or generative image. Mm hmm. Like, I think having a good uh, understanding of, of, you know, visual descriptions and, you know, generate this in the style of this artist with these curves. And like, that's something that I think does require a, a very specific skill set. But other aspects of prompt engineering, like, you know, providing a prompt for a chat model in a, this some particular tone. Like, I, I think that that is honestly not useful at all. <laughs> Maybe it is just a, a stepping stone along the way. And that might just go away, like you're kind of explaining there. One of the models you mentioned, there was a zero shot model. What is that? Uh, yeah, so zero shot in the context of large language models is just a model that predicts something based off of zero prior examples. Now, it's a little like misleading because zero prior examples in the context of large language models is almost never true. It has an example probably of everything somewhere in its training set. But when you're talking in the context of large language models, we say zero shot. That means I give a prompt or I ask a, a language model to follow an instruction, and I don't give it any examples of the model following an instruction. So a lot of times you'll see prompts that have you know an instruction that says, write me a regular expression that does this. And then I could say, give it a few examples of regular expressions that pass or fail what I want. Uh, in, that, in that case, it would be a few shot example. Whereas if I were to just say, write me a regular expression that does this, and then I expect it to complete the task, then that's a zero shot example. Kids are few shot examples then. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that OpenAI is a, is a company, despite its name, that help bring artificial intelligence to the mainstream. But a lot of our, our as in the Elixir community's interactions with artificial intelligence it can be through OpenAI, but at least with Livebook, it's probably not been OpenAI. It's been a lot of these open source things that are hosted on like Hugging Face or, you know, the, uh, these other things. Can you, can you help me understand like the relationship between like these large language models and how they flow into the open source community and then by, by extension into Livebook and all the, all the things that you've been doing? OpenAI is an interesting example because they did start out as a predominantly open source research institution, and they still do some open source work, obviously less so now. But the story there, you, so I, I forget the exact year it was, but um, they released the original 
GPT generative pre-trained transformer, probably back, you know, in 2018 or 2017, late 2017. And then they released a second variant, which was GPT-2, which was, uh, you know, a larger variant than the first one. And they kind of realized that if you could just scale these models up and give them a ton of data, then they actually get a lot better and they, they generalize really well. GPT-2 was the first example of them sort of pulling back a little bit. So they did not initially release the weights and implementation for GPT-2 right away because they were worried about the, uh, I guess, you know, misinformation effects or, you know, the, the negative downstream effects that the model could have because it was pretty good, which in hindsight is kind of funny because comparatively to what we have open source now, GPT-2 is, it's laughably bad. <laughs> so, you know, these, the release of these open source large language models or the practice of releasing these has been around for a while mm -hmm. you know people have been releasing large pre-trained transformers for a very long time now so long now like hugging face transformers has been around i think like the transformers library has been around for you know at least three or four years now i think the library i forget when the first commit was but it's been around for a while where these open source transformer implementations for a lot of text and uh, vision tasks have been around so the, the relationship between the open source community and this sort of like private research practice is interesting because you get outflows of researchers from private institutions who, you know, they, they go and work elsewhere and then they, maybe they believe in publishing something open source. So they ended up publishing open source or you have people that flow from the open source community into the, the private research community. But I don't think there's necessarily as large of a gap between, you know, the state of the art in terms of like model architecture and training procedures and everything that OpenAI has. I think their largest advantage is really in compute and data that nobody else has access to and, and really emphasis on the data. They have had the GPT-3 API for probably close to three years now. And so they have a three-year head start on essentially everyone else on examples of, you know, what does a good instruction following model look like? They've really prioritized collecting quality dialogue data, for example, with ChatGPT, and just prioritized this process of aggregating quality data. And having a three-year head start on that is massive in terms of you know model performance. And I think we're seeing that obviously in how well the open source models are compared to GPT. Yeah, yeah, that that reminds me of uh, Tesla, the automaker. They've had a good head start in getting their like supercharger network built out, so that they become much more of the default thinking for electric cars now, even though a lot of other automakers have them now. Okay, but to, to going back to AI though, typically when you think about like an open source library version of something and then a proprietary library version of something, there's gonna be a lot of those like, well, the proprietary, just pay the fee to the proprietary one, it's gonna be a lot better, yada, yada, you know, you know whatever. The open source ones are kind of like, grassroots efforts, maybe not as, as good or something like that. That's the, that's the perceived, you know, quality of these things. But do you think this is true or do you think that gap is that large? Tell me what you think. So I don't think it's necessarily as large if you look at it on a set of specialized tasks. So if we're to compare GPT-4 on a set of general tasks to the open source alternatives that are out there, I think GPT-4 wins every time. But if you have the ability to collect quality data for your specific task or small set of tasks, sit there and label and, and you have the, the, you know, the compute, the ability and the time to fine tune your model on whatever set of tasks you want it to, to do, 
I think you'll find that your model one does better on that specific task and then also saves you a significant amount of money. So I think there was a paper recently that they essentially analyzed the three ways of conditioning models on specific data. And when I say conditioning models, what I mean is like injecting context, task-specific context into a model. So for example, if I want to train a model that responds to questions about like your company's documentation. That's an example of like something that's very specific to your company. And there are three ways you could condition the model. You could, you just give it a a very specialized prompt, or you could give it a specialized prompt and also inject context from your documentation. So you retrieve specific bits of the documentation, depending on the question that someone asks about it, or you fine tune the model on your company's data and questions that people have had about your company's data. And then you have a very specialized version of a model that answers questions. And what they found was that fine-tuned model is still the gold standard compared to just injecting context into something like GPT-4. If you have enough quality data and enough is very, you know, it's a a mystery what enough data really is. Like when does it cross the threshold of being enough? But more (laughs) is almost always better. But fine-tuning is still is still the gold standard. And you could save inference costs. You can save a lot of money. You can say like you still have... privacy, uh, your company owns the data and the model. So there are a lot of benefits to, to adopting the open source paradigm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I think this finally brings us into the work that you've been doing, right? So we started with like open AI, this proprietary settings, generalized, that, that kind of stuff. You, you use it. There's a lot of wow factor. It can do some, some tasks fairly well with, for you, but there's a lot of hallucinations, right? And by hallucinations, I mean, it looks true enough, but it's wrong. <laughs> But these open source models bring the control back to the user a bit more and to the operator a bit more. So now we see the the usefulness and the and the importance of this being open source and not you know with private companies and all that kind of stuff. What's the kind of work that you've been doing lately to help operationalize these AI efforts for individuals and other companies? You know, like just these fine tuned tasks that you're talking about. Yeah, so I've had a lot of my work now focused on adding models and and tasks like specifically to Bumblebee. So Bumblebee is our high level machine learning library. So it's a set of you know pre-trained machine learning models as well as a set of specialized tasks for different things you might want to do with machine learning. So text classification or text generation. And I've spent a lot of time exploring what the open source Python ecosystem has. So like what set of tasks do they have? What models are available? Uh, as well as, you know, working with companies and people that are have specific use cases and trying to implement their use cases in Bumblebee and Elixir and just show that, hey, these are things you can really easily do in Elixir. And specific, specifically with Bumblebee, you can do things in like 10 lines of code uh, and you have like a working machine learning pipeline that integrates directly with like a Phoenix application. So I've spent a lot of time essentially just searching for use cases. So if someone says like, I need this model and I'll spend my time, you know, doing that model, or if I find a model that, you know, gets really popular on Hacker News, then I want to see if we can do that. That was actually what happened with Stable Diffusion was I saw that, you know, it gotten really popular because it was around the time that Dolly was taking off and then there was an open source alternative. And it was like, well, I wonder how easy this would be in Elixir. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, wrapping that up before we even released Bubblebee was, was getting Stable Diffusion to work. Uh, and it, it did end up working, obviously. Now you can do Stable Diffusion and Elixir. So that's kind of been my my journey recently is just finding 
open source use cases or use cases that I can implement for Bumblebee and, and NX in general. I love this topic about operationalizing something like this, because as I mentioned, you know, I'm an, an Elixir developer. I don't have a lot of machine learning training, like none. <laughs> and the biggest challenge I've seen is how do I take a model like that Bumblebee offers and how do I actually put that into use in a way that's productive and, and helpful in my application? I'm missing a lot of those pieces for how to integrate things. As an example, like the Whisper chat that does speech to text. Bumblebee has an example of how to do that, but it only gives it a small example. And then it's like, oh, well, I'm going to take this. I'm going to use it on my on my podcast and create a transcript. And then I quickly learn, oh, I can't because there's more that goes into this. Thankfully, Chris McCord actually with Live Beats helped bridge that gap for me, which is tying in these other tools like FFmpeg, getting it chunked to a good size, understanding these specific things around bit settings and things like that that are specific to the audio streams, you know, things like that. It's like, that's where it becomes really operational in my mind. Like, how do I actually take the model that is available now through Bumblebee and then have my Elixir code work with it in a meaningful way? That's where I struggle. I was wondering if you have any tips or thoughts on how we as Elixir developers who want to use these models, where do we go to, how do we learn these things? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of looking directly at other people's examples. So specifically like Hugging Face Spaces, there are a ton of examples of people using these models with the Python ecosystem. Now, one of the things that we are like strictly different from in the Python ecosystem is uh, I don't think we necessarily hide as much of, you know, the abstractions from developers. So Python, a lot of the examples that, that tie these models together they're very implicit with what's going on behind the scenes. You, you know, they might hide like four different libraries behind a single call to predict, and you really have no idea what's going on. So it can be difficult to trace. You might have to, you know, spend some time getting comfortable with the hugging face, you know, source code and, and whatnot. But I think the one really cool thing about like hugging face in particular is they really view their open source code as like their product uh, as a company. So they, they go a really long way of making sure they're, you know, their implementations are consistent. You know, everything is, I would say, like standalone. So you can go through one file and, and really get a good understanding of, of what's going on. So I, I'm a big fan of going straight to the source. You can also look at some of the examples we have in the Bumblebee repo. And then even, you know, easier would just be looking at some of the latest implementations in Livebook. So Livebook has implementations of a lot of these servings, we call them, which are essentially just wrappers around the process of solving a task with machine learning. So it, it encapsulates pre-processing, inference, and post-processing. So going from raw input data, which could be an image, straight to a machine learning model, and then taking the output of the machine learning model and then translating that into something that's understandable to humans. So these servings wrap that entire process into one. Livebook actually implements a lot of these servings as smart cells. So you can configure this smart cell with no code and then you can get access to the to the source code that the smart cell creates for you after the fact so you can go through the process of you know creating a serving without actually knowing how to create a serving and then you can get the code after the fact yeah i've always appreciated that that feature of livebook to <laughs> start with the smart cell and then show me what you're really doing i kind of want to know what this is well that's cool about knowing also that a lot of the example code is available on hugging face spaces 
that's a great resource. And honestly, Python code is not that hard to read. <laughs> so that also is, is a, a nice benefit. I guess the bigger step there is realizing that there might be other layers that are wrapping up different behaviors that we might need to dig a little into. Yeah, exactly. I think um, hugging face spaces, I just like just to give an example. So you could go on hugging face spaces right now and there will be something that'll be like a talk to my document. So document question and answering. And you click on the files and you view an app.py and it'll tell you like what model that is using and then how they're actually ingesting the data and then how they're going from turning that document into, let's say, some input that a machine learning model could take and what the model's doing. So if folks spend time looking at what these spaces are doing and say, for example, that there's a model that's not implemented, that's one of the things that I love is when people come to me and say, hey, I need this model specifically implemented because then it gives me some direction on what model you know people have desire for in the Elixir ecosystem. You got to be careful about saying that out loud. You know, everyone's going to come and say. might, might want to uh, beat that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I heard you recently talking about Python. You mentioned in an interview that you believe that some people may have been turning to Elixir to help with their ML solutions in production environments because they may have been burned by Python. And I was curious if you could share a little bit more insight about what that means and what kinds of problems people are encountering when they're trying to use Python. Yeah, so I think the quintessential example for this is if people were at ElixirConf US last year where Chris Granger talked about his company's transition from Python to Elixir. You know, there are a lot of challenges when it comes to deploying machine learning models in Python. One of the challenges is that, you know, I think nobody agrees really on what the set of best practices are for deploying machine learning models, specifically in the Python ecosystem. There's also a lot of issues when it comes to like, you know, challenges with environments. I don't think the deployment story is as good. I can share it. So a specific example, I've worked with a company called Teller doing some machine learning stuff with them. And one of their models does entity recognition, which is essentially extracting the proper nouns from, it could be a sentence. In this case, it's transactions. So you have a set of transactions from your bank and, you know, it'll say this was Adidas or, or whatever. So pulling out that information, a lot of customers want to know like, hey, what is the counterparty in this, in this transaction? Who was the merchant in this transaction? And their entity recognition model is in Python. It's a separate service that runs behind like a Falcon server. And one of the challenges there is that Python being single threaded, that you have to actually run like eight replicas of this server to handle all of the load. And it, it's not necessarily the easiest to maintain. Uh, they're using kind of like an outdated version of Spacey, which is a very popular natural language processing. So we're going through the process now of just transitioning that model entirely to use Axon, NX, and Bumblebee. And one of the cool things is that it's like, I think the actual implementation of the logic for doing this is like, hundred lines of Elixir. Uh, it's very, very simple. Nice. And, oh, sweet. <laughs> and the Python implementation is like an entire project. So one of the challenges too, or one of the interesting things too, is that like we're dealing with like, you know, five or 6 million transactions a day. So it's like, it's like 25 a second or 30 a second. And that's a relatively small load with, you know, the, the number of enrollments that they have. So it's something that's only going to go up. So dealing with like the scaling issue there has, has been really interesting because it's one of the first, I think like very, very high volume large-scale examples of NX at the enterprise level. So it's, it's a very ch interesting and challenging problem. Help me break my perception if it's wrong. I've had this perception that AI things have been in the data scientist's office only. It's not really operationalized in any way. This guy, you know, this, this person probably has a bunch of Excel spreadsheets open and, you know, just 
throwing this data ad hoc into some some model thing, right? And it doesn't really go much further from that. But now we're approaching the age of AI being, well, we've been using this word and I like it, but operationalized into applications for ongoing stuff as, as part of what the application itself is doing. And so in this case, it's Teller. And I certainly know that my bank, when it tries to categorize my transactions, they are like always wrong. <laughs> Or there's some like uh, services like Toast. If you ever go to like a restaurant or something, a lot of uh, the the receipt always turns up as Toast. I'm like, I didn't go to a place called Toast today. No, that's just the point of sale system that they use. <laughs> yeah, and it's like categorized as like entertainment or something. And it's I, I was not entertained by that steak I ate. You know, like <laughs> so I, I find that this is like highly valuable. And the other thing you mentioned was that Python being single threaded. Yep. Uh, I've heard uh, several stories about that in other languages as well. And it's like one of those big, big selling points of the beam is just being able to handle all of these concurrent operations, orchestrate these kind of processes together and NX breaking that that computational barrier, moving into the GPU when, when it's available to get that kind of performance when needed. This is coming together to be a very compelling solution. And I'm hoping that more folks will see that, you know, that, that, that it's not just our I don't know whether to call it a niche community anymore. I'm I, I'm still not sure. I don't. I want to say no, but it's stuff like what you're working on, uh, Sean. That's that's helping us uh, get more visibility. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, one of the things I want to talk about specifically in the case of like operationalizing machine learning models with NX is uh, I think like our serving abstraction is is really really powerful. So serving you'll you'll hear the word serving a lot in, in ml operations so serving frameworks or serving libraries or just libraries that help people do inferences with machine learning models there are like a hundred different serving frameworks out there that you can find if you just google like machine learning serving you'll find i could name four off the top of my head you know there's ones that are framework specific there's some from nvidia it's it, they're just insane there's a lot of advantages that serving frameworks offer there's dynamic batching which is essentially just you know, trans like behind the scenes, if you have a ton of overlapping concurrent requests, you, you don't want to send those all to like a GPU individually. You'd like to batch them together. So uh, you delay the inference process for say like a few milliseconds so you that you can have all these requests run at once and then you partition them back out. And they also handle things like distribution across nodes and distribution across GPUs. And the the cool thing with our implementation of serving is that you can do both the partitioning and the distribution very, very easily. It's just like some configuration options. And if you have a cluster of, you know, Elixir nodes and they're all running a serving, then there you go. You have distributed inference across all of your nodes. We have like, if you have multiple GPUs on the same machine, you want to partition across those GPUs. Well, then you just set partition true and, and you have <laughs> inference that works across those GPUs. So uh, it's it's something that's like super trivial to to, to implement and super trivial for people that, you know, they aren't necessarily machine learning experts. Like I said, it's, it's like a few lines of code to get this stuff up and running. So you don't have to learn some other framework or anything like that to, to get things running. You can just have it running in your Elixir app and it scales really, really well. We talk about operationalizing and, and putting and tuning the, the language model. I don't hear about storing that. I don't know what that solution looks like. To me, it's all still in memory. But I know that there's a thing called PG vector for storing those tokens into a database for persisted storage. And so that way the app can reboot and all that because it doesn't lose all that stuff. I'd love to like understand that a little bit better, but 
maybe not. The, maybe I'll have to have him Sean back. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe not this time. <laughs> I just wish I thought about it earlier because that's like operationalizing it. Like, well, storing it is pretty important to making that an ongoing thing. So you can continue to tune and reuse and get better and add more inputs, uh, you know, that kind of stuff as, as time goes on. You'd mentioned this idea of wanting to be able to support models that you see people requesting or that are important in the community and showing up. And one of those recent models I saw you add support for was Llama. And I think this is a, a point where it's it makes sense to just pause and explain what Llama is and its background so that we can understand what we can and can't use it for, for production use and, and things like that. So maybe you can give us a little bit of intro, like what is Llama? And and you added support for it in BubbleBase. Like maybe you can talk about that. Sure. Yeah. So Llama is an open source language model from Meta. It, it's one of the ones that came out, I think, very recently after ChatGPT really took off. They released this model and, and it's a very capable model. So it's probably one of the most capable open source models that's out there. Even more interesting are the fine-tuned or instruction-tuned variants of Llama, which are like Alpaca and uh, some of these other ones where they essentially use uh, GPT-4 to generate a data set of instructions for these models to be trained on. And then they've spent a lot of time fine-tuning some of these larger models to follow instructions better. So Llama is probably the most capable, I would say, open source large language model out there. There's a few others out there that are you know, in the works. There's the stability language model that is based on some work from Stability AI, as well as a model from Eleuther AI, which are two big open source names and or two big names in the open source artificial intelligence ecosystem. And yeah, so Llama is really just a very capable large language model that people can use for specifically academic and just research purposes. Uh, you cannot use Llama for commercial use cases. There is a license that that prevents the commercial aspect of or the commercialization of these large language models. I understand that some of the like there, there was the open source aspect that uh, Meta released, but then there were weights that were being held back and the weights were leaked. So like the, the fact that those were not officially released also puts it into that gray area where it's like, you can't use this in a production for-profit system. Yeah, there's like an interesting legal battle, I think, going on. Someone got a DMCA takedown for releasing the weights or like creating a, a downloader for the weights. And now they're arguing that like you cannot copyright machine learning model weights because i think one of the grounds for copyright is that it has to be largely man made like it has to be largely like work but done by a human and if you consider what is happening with like training these machine learning models like all of the work is done by the computer uh, like the only the only unique aspect is like maybe the training code but i think all of that would be under like an mit license or something like that so the weights themselves are 100% like computer generated and computer made. I think the argument is that it falls under the same grounds as like the images generated by Stable Diffusion and some of these other works that they can't be copyrighted because they're not man-made works. We're venturing into interesting waters here yeah. legally with AI. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't there a famous picture taken by a monkey? It's a selfie, from, but the picture was actually taken by the monkey. And so that can't be, I can't remember the outcome of that, but I don't remember that one being copyrightable. Was it NFTable? <laughs> <laughs> That'll solve it. <laughs> if people do want to play with Llama and you added Bumblebee support for it, like what does that look like? What do they have to have locally to be able to do that? Or one of the variants like Alpaca? 
as long as you have a, a working installation of, of Elixir, it should work. I think there are, are weights that are available through Hugging Face for download. There are still some challenges with using Llama in Elixir. So we don't support like quantized inference, which helps people run these models on smaller machines. We don't support like inference that is partitioned across multiple machines. I've used partitioned a few times here, but what I mean there is that one aspect of the model lives on one GPU and then the other aspect, like some other part of the model lives on another GPU and you do the inference across both of those. So we don't support that. So some of the more, I would say, technically challenging things that, that arise with these super massive models, we don't necessarily have support for. That's good to know because we, we need to set some expectations. <laughs> it's like, oh, I could just run it all on my laptop. And I know there are efforts by others and communities to to get those smaller, more purpose-tuned, stripped-down models. But yeah, they're still going to be very slow compared to what you're used to, like maybe interacting with ChatGPT. So this is all very exciting stuff. So what are you working on next? I know you mentioned you got this book that we have something to look forward to. Maybe that'll be, you know, maybe that's just the ticket. That's what I need for my operationalizing some of these models and figuring out how to connect those dots. But uh, what else is taking your attention? Yeah, so I've, I've got a lot of things on my plate right now. I'm really, like I said, exploring operationalized machine learning workflows and like enterprise use cases of, of NX and Bumblebee and Axon. I really want to add support sometime in the next year for doing like quantized inference and enabling people to do inference of these machine learning models on smaller machines. But I'd also really like to improve the training ecosystem. So the ability to fine tune pre-trained models in, in Elixir using some of the state of the art approaches like LoRa and you know, some of the things that are out there that let people train these models on commercial GPUs rather than some of the, the larger, you know, server grade uh, GPUs out there. I also am really interested in exploring some of the machine learning, I guess, like tangential aspects of, of this ecosystem. So an example is, you know, vector databases are, are like a, all the rage right now, but integrating that stuff directly into some of the tooling we have right now. And then I'm just trying my best to to convince people to come and adopt the ecosystem. So I have a friend right now who was working on the uh, decision tree library for Elixir. And so that was that took a lot of convincing to get him to write that. But off the ground now, he's, I think, now an, an Elixir, full-time Elixir evangelist like myself. So no. it's been pretty successful. <laughs> Is this the uh, XG, G, uh, XG boost? XG, yep. XG boost, yeah. Well, Sean, I'm sure there's a lot more that we'd love to talk about and ask questions and pick your brain on. But we don't have infinite time. If people do want to follow you or get in touch with you or hear more of what you're doing, where can they go to do that? I tweet regularly now, uh, definitely more regularly than I used to. So you can follow me on Twitter at Sean underscore Moriarty. Um, and you can also follow along with my work on GitHub. I sometimes write blog posts on my personal website. And I also write a lot of blog posts in the community specifically for Dockyard. So yeah, you can find me there. And I understand you're speaking soon. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So I'll be speaking at MPEX in Brooklyn on June 9th. I'll be talking about large language models and, and you know, Elixir and what the future uh, of those two transformative technologies looks like. Ooh, that's exciting. Hopefully that'll also be recorded and made available afterward. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for coming on and, and helping me piece together some of these technologies and giving some expert perspective in this space. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on. It was a lot of fun. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.